Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Allow me just one minute, one moment, to set the record straight. I preached on gluttony on the Sunday after Thanksgiving. I wouldn't do that, actually, because Thanksgiving is probably one of my favorite days of the entire year, and it's probably because I love food. I love food. One of the things that I'm most excited about when we go on vacation as a family is where we're going to eat, and I'm really looking forward to a wonderful meal this Thursday, but even as I sit down and enjoy that meal, I know that it will not surpass the best meal because the best meal ever is yet to be served. It doesn't get served until the end of the age. It's referred to as the marriage supper of the lamb in Revelation chapter 19. And Jesus actually alludes to this meal in Matthew chapter eight, taking place in the kingdom of heaven. There's this meal that takes place in the kingdom of heaven. And we would be wise to ask the question, how do we find a seat at the table? at that great feast of eternal thanksgiving in the age to come. How do we find a seat at the table? Well, we're actually told how we find a seat at the table. If we look at the broader context of this meal happening in the kingdom of heaven that Jesus brings up in Matthew chapter 8 by looking at verses 5 through 13. And so that's our text for this morning. I ask that you turn to Matthew chapter 8. Verses 5 through 13. If you do not have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to find one in one of the seats in front of you. And our text is on page 474 of those Bibles. But again, our passage is Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. So if you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. So note, first of all, that Jesus has just healed a leper, an outcast in the Jewish community in the passage just before what we read. And he restores this leper to the covenant community with his healing. And now we pick up in verse 5 by encountering another outsider, this Roman centurion. In verse 5 we read, When he entered Capernaum, 
a centurion came forward to him. And so we begin with a humble appeal here in this text, a humble appeal. Now, a centurion was a Roman military commander in charge of about 100 soldiers underneath him. We can actually see and hear with our ears the word century in centurion, meaning 100. So there's 100 soldiers that he's in charge of. And a Roman centurion had a number of duties and responsibilities in the empire. One of those was policing regions or areas to try to maintain public peace and safety and quelling any riots that might break out. It was a centurion's job to know what was going on. And so with this policing kind of work entrusted to the centurion, we probably shouldn't be surprised to find that there's a centurion present at Jesus' crucifixion later in Matthew in chapter 27, verse 54. It's his job to know what's going on and to keep the public peace. And somehow this centurion had heard something about Jesus of Nazareth. We don't know how or what he's heard, but he approaches Jesus of Nazareth. Maybe he had heard about the healing of the leper. We don't know, but we do discover that this personal crisis has caused such distress that it propels him and compels him, as it would any of us, to seek help wherever he might be able to find it. And so we read of this humble appeal in verse 6 as this centurion approaches Jesus and says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And so this centurion, who is accustomed to exercising Roman power, now finds himself helpless in the midst of his circumstances. And he approaches this Jewish teacher for help. Now this would have required no small amount of humility on the part of this Roman centurion to approach this Jewish teacher for assistance. And it would have required no small amount of courage as well because Jesus could have simply dismissed or denied the request and actually renounced the centurion publicly. Keep in mind that this centurion would have been regarded as an enemy of the Jewish people and a symbol of foreign oppression on Israelite soil. And so should we think that this centurion is going to receive the same compassion and healing that the leper does in the story just before this. Well, how does Jesus respond? Well, Jesus responds with words of tenderness and mercy. We read in verse 7, he replies to this humble appeal by saying, I will come and heal him. So think of the scope of this compassion that Jesus is encountered by this Roman centurion with a need. And Jesus says, I will go. And I will heal him. But then we see more of this humility on the part of the centurion. As he says in verse 8, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. Those are words of humility from this Roman military commander saying to Jesus at this point, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now, he also could be expressing an awareness and sensitivity to the Jewish prohibition of entering into the homes of Gentiles. We actually read of this later in Acts chapter 10, verse 28, when the Lord directs Peter to go to the home of Cornelius, a Gentile. And Peter, on that occasion, explains to those who were there. Peter says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. And so this Roman centurion reflects this humility. I'm not worthy to have you come under my house. And perhaps a sensitivity to this Jewish custom, but it's more than just a mere sensitivity to Jewish custom. 
because we also read of this remarkable acknowledgement on the part of the centurion. He explains in verse 9, For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. In other words, the centurion knows how authority works. He gets it, and he perceives by faith that Jesus possesses authority. Not an earthly authority, but a heavenly authority. He trusts that all Jesus has to do is say a word, and his servant will be healed because somehow he perceives in Jesus this authority over the forces of oppression and sickness. That all he has to do is say the word. This Roman centurion is used to exercising the power of the sword to restrain and to punish, but he perceives in Jesus this power to liberate and to heal just by speaking a word. That is remarkable faith, isn't it? It's right to refer to this as a remarkable acknowledgement, partly because Jesus finds it remarkable, because he remarks on it. <laughs> he has a remark about this expression, these words of the centurion. We read about it in verse 10. It says, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. This is high praise. Nowhere in Israel have I seen such faith displayed as with this Roman centurion. But of course, this remark by Jesus should make sense when we understand that those who were with Jesus for three years required the cross and the resurrection to perceive that all authority in heaven and earth had been given to him. And this centurion recognizes it right away. What the Jewish leaders of Jesus' time would never come to perceive, this Roman centurion gets right away from the outset. And faith that was lacking in Israel is evidenced by this Gentile. And so Jesus says, not even in Israel have I seen such faith. Now that was likely to offend probably some of the Jews who were there, but not as much as the next statement that Jesus makes as we go on to read about a startling announcement. Jesus says in verses 11 and 12, I tell you, Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here is this reference to this meal to take place in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus goes from, remar from remarking upon this centurion's faith to talking about this meal in the kingdom. Hold that connection for just a second. He goes from talking about the centurion's faith to this reference to the meal in the kingdom of heaven. But first his concern is, who's going to be there? Well, people from all over the world. People coming from east and west. People from all over the place. Gentiles, like this Roman centurion, will find a seat at the table alongside the covenant people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Startling announcement. But it gets even more startling when Jesus says, not only that, the sons of the kingdom, referring to the Israelites here, will be left out, thrown into the outer darkness. It's a startling reversal. Gentiles brought in to share in this great feast in the kingdom. Israelites 
left out. Now, of course, maybe we shouldn't be all that surprised to read about Gentile inclusion in the kingdom and their presence at this meal in the age to come if we've been paying attention to Matthew's gospel up to this point in time. Because we've already read in Matthew's gospel Gentiles in the genealogy of Jesus. We've already read in Matthew the arrival of the Magi from the east who have come to worship Jesus. We've already read in Matthew that when his family was forced to flee to Egypt from protection from Herod, when they return, they decide to settle in Galilee of the Gentiles. So maybe we shouldn't be all that surprised to discover here that not only does this Roman centurion receive the same grace, mercy, and healing from Jesus that the leper receives from him, he is also welcomed and restored in a way to a place among the covenant people. It's kind of a first fruits of the Gentiles, if you will, in Matthew's gospel. But more would come from the east and the west. More would come. But how would they find a seat at the table? Well, think about the connection here. Again, Jesus moves from remarking on this centurion's faith to talking about this great meal, the best meal ever in the age to come. What's the connection? On what basis do we find a seat at the table? It's by grace through faith in Jesus. A seat at the table is, de is dependent upon how one responds to Jesus People from all over the world would come to receive Jesus as King and Savior and Messiah and be welcomed to that table while many of his own people would reject him and be left out by failing to put their faith in Jesus. A seat at the table is bestowed by grace through faith in Jesus, which means that that seat at the table is not bestowed on the basis of race or ethnicity or lineage, or national citizenship. But it also means that nor is that seat bestowed upon the basis of good works, or moral achievement, achievement, or denominational affiliation, or political party affiliation. A seat at the table is bestowed as a gift by grace from God through faith in Jesus, as the sovereign king, the one to whom all authority has been trusted, and the one to whom we look for salvation, even as Paul makes abundantly clear in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, when he writes, For by grace you've been saved through faith. You've been made a part of the kingdom by grace through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. It's a gift for which we're thankful to have a seat at the table. By grace through faith in Jesus, so is your faith in Jesus. Are you trusting in him as your king? Well, hear the words of warning here. That for those who don't trust in Jesus, there's a place outside, left out. But the good news is that you can have a seat at the table. That that great meal, the best meal ever in the age to come, you can have a seat at that banquet. You can have a place in the kingdom by grace through faith in Jesus. And you may have felt like an outsider your entire life. You may have experienced a lot of rejection in your life. You may feel that you are unworthy of the love of anyone that you know. 
Maybe because of the sinful choices that you've made. Maybe because of sins that have been committed against you. Maybe even sins committed against you by your own family. And let's be honest. Some of you here this morning are not looking forward to a Thanksgiving meal with your family because of how much hurt and wounds exist in the past, how much dysfunction continues in that. And you can feel like an outsider. You can feel rejected. You can feel unlovable. But the good news of the gospel for us this morning is that Jesus was born into the world to make, insi to make outsiders insiders. Jesus lived a sinless, perfect life so he could take rejects and welcome them into his presence with loving acceptance. And Jesus died an atoning death on the cross so that he could take those who were enemies and transform them into dearly beloved adopted children who find a seat at his table in the home of the Heavenly Father forever and ever to enjoy his presence by grace through faith in Jesus. So if your faith is in Jesus this morning, if you're trusting him as your king and as your savior, know that he has secured for you a seat at the table. You are wanted and welcomed at the eternal party. There is a little card in front of a plate with your name on it, written in the atoning blood of Jesus as a display of his love for you. So even as we look forward to this wonderful meal on Thanksgiving Day, we can be thankful for a seat at the table by grace through faith in Jesus at the best meal ever coming in the age to come. Let's look forward to that with gratitude. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we marvel at your grace that would prepare for us a seat at your eternal table where we would experience joy and fullness and life. And this comes only through Jesus, so we thank you for, for his life, for his death, for his resurrection that gives us life, that gives us rebirth, that gives us the hope of eternal life, sitting at the table of your covenant people purchased by your blood. We thank you for your goodness, your love, your grace, and your salvation to us. We offer this praise to you and thanks to you in Jesus' name. Amen.